0: Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, Sojourn. Uh, It is wonderful to see you this morning. Um, It's wonderful to be with you. It's good to see some new faces who I haven't met yet. So glad you guys are here. I look forward to meeting you. Uh, uh, hearing a little bit more about your story, sharing some of mine. Um, we're glad that you're here. I hope that you felt welcomed here at Sojourn. Uh, as you heard Adam Reed, we are in Psalm 133. We're finishing a short four-week series that we've been in, in what are known as the Psalms of Ascent. For, we've done four of the 15. Um, and these would have been songs that were sung by Jewish pilgrims over the ages as they traveled to Jerusalem for uh, annual feasts uh, for worship. And we came out, the series that we preached uh, just before this series through the Psalms of Ascent was through the book of Nehemiah, which is a book about the renewal of, it's, it's about rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, and it's really about the renewal of the city of God. And we learned in that series what it looks like to participate in the renewal, in the building of the city of God, which according to the Bible is the church. Uh, and so it's fitting coming out of a you know, building the City of God series to talk about visiting that city that we've been laboring to build for worship. So it's been a wonderful thing to be in these psalms. Uh, And today we're in Psalm 133. Psalm 133 is a wonderful psalm. Of course, I could say that uh, about really any psalm. Uh, But it is a particularly beautiful song uh, uh, that is quoted often. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Uh, it, it's, one of the, it's, it's one of the refrains of God's people uh, through the Old Testament and the New Testament of what it means to be, how pleasant it is to be dwelling together in unity. And so this psalm really is about unity. And it's a good thing for us to talk about, uh, always. Uh, and I think Psalm 133 has a, a really important picture. There's something really important here in Psalm 133 that we need to hear As God's people at Sojourn and uh, just as Christians in the world. Uh, Because if we consider the world around us, unity is seemingly difficult to find and enjoy today. Uh, And as Christians, if we do a little bit of study of history, we can see, we don't have to look very far back to see that Christians have not always been a prime example of unity and peace. Uh, to give just one example that I was studying as I was thinking about this sermon, there's a war that took place in the 17th century, 1600s, early 1600s, called the Thirty Years' War, and it was a terrible war, very a bloody war. By some accounts, a third of the population of Europe was wiped out during this war. Um, Coming out of the Reformation, it wasn't entirely a religious war. There were also, of course, political powers at play, but it was kicked off in many ways by the Reformation and the civil authority in Europe, and it was a war over which Christians got control of the land. Um, it's a terrible story. Many people died. And by the end of the Thirty Years' War, there was a lot of fatigue regarding religious war and religious conflict. Um, in many ways, there's his, some historians make the argument that the Enlightenment, there's got to be a better way of doing human life than religion, was in part birthed on the back of the Thirty Years' War in Europe. Uh, and there's one a quote that I want to read for you from a, a teacher, a pastor named Jacob Spaner. He was a Lutheran pietist. Coming out of the Thirty Years' War, there was this movement called pietism that was an, an, an effort, in essence, to get to the basics of piety. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And they were looking around at a lot of the pastors and leaders during the war and stuff that they were saying that they thought was not as helpful. Um, and Jacob Spaner was one of the leaders of this movement. And he observed, coming out of the war, very fatigued by religious conflict, He observed pastors who were leading in knowledge rather than the spirit. Listen to a quote that he says about pastors. His concern is this. When these pastors really achieve the purpose they set themselves, they succeed in giving those of their hearers who have ready minds a fair knowledge of religious controversies. And these hearers regard it as the greatest honor to dispute with others, to argue with others. Both preachers and hearers confine themselves to the notion that one thing needful— the one thing needful is the assertion and retention of pure doctrine, which must not be overthrown by errors, even if it is very much obscured with human perversions. So if you heard the point that Spaner's getting at in this quote, he's not against pure doctrine. What he's against is the pastors who are majoring on argument as the way that they are pastoring their churches. If you have, you, you have these Christians coming out of a bloody conflict and we're still focusing on the wrong things, Spaner's saying. We're simply training people to defend right doctrine through argument. We're not training Christians to be Christians. We're training a bunch of people to win arguments rather than to know God, to enjoy God's love, and to demonstrate God's love to the world around in a way that's marked by wisdom. And so today, at a time when unity and peace seem increasingly difficult to find and enjoy, at a time in which many people are trying to point towards just make the right arguments follow the right priorities and principles, it's important to kind of think about what unity is and where it comes from. And so uh, I think that Psalm 133 presents us with a really critical picture of the kind of unity that God intends and offers to us. And so my plan for the morning is this, we're going to look at what unity is like in Psalm 133. Uh, Second, we're going to look at where unity comes from. And third, we're going to consider what this means for us as a church. So first, Let's look at what unity is like. And to do this, we'll look at the text. Psalm 133 begins with, of course, the statement that you heard Adam read Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This is a Psalm of David. Uh, from the Old Testament, and this statement can be interpreted pretty broadly to refer to all of God's people as descendants of Abraham who would have been brothers and sisters in one family. And this psalm is also talking about the in between moments where there's just two or three people enjoying f- fellowship and unity. It's a wonderful thing to enjoy unity, living together. Uh, the psalm goes on to compare the beauty of brothers dwelling in unity with two things oil and dew. So we probably know, I know you guys probably know what oil is and what dew is, but it probably doesn't mean a whole lot to us unless we understand the context in which oil and dew are referred to here. Oil and dew are very, would have been well-known biblical pictures. And so let's consider what these pictures mean for just a moment. The first thing that enjoyment of unity is compared to is oil. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. What is it like? Verse 2. It is like precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Oil in the Bible pointed to two primary things. The presence of God and being set apart for God's purpose. That's what oil points to. The presence of God and the setting apart uh, of something or someone for God's purpose. And to get at this a little bit more, let's consider who Aaron was. Who was Aaron? Aaron was the very first high priest of Israel. Moses' brother, Uh, and here's what the Lord said to Moses to do with Aaron, the first high priest. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices, liquid myrrh, sweet-smelling cinnamon, aromatic cane, cassia, and olive oil, and you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil." So Moses is commanded to, to blend olive oil with all of these sweet-smelling spices to create a fragrant, aromatic thing to then dump on his brother's head and all the other priests to set them apart for the work of ministry. That's word, the word The word in the Bible is consecrate. You use anointing oil to consecrate. And consecrate is a word that means to declare something holy, to set apart something for a holy purpose. Everything that is to be used for a holy purpose needs to first be consecrated. And that's what anointing oil is for, is for consecrating things and people. And here, the picture is of oil anointing Aaron, the priest, in a way that overflows. It runs—it's not just lightly applied to his head. It runs down his head, to his beard, down his garments. The word translated collar here could either refer to the collar or to the hem of his robe The clear picture is of the whole man being anointed with oil from top to bottom. And this image of oil running from the head down to the rest of the body is important because it conveys the idea that God's blessings don't belong to the few, but are free to be shared and spread, unifying the body from head to toe. It speaks to a people being united across across differences— it calls to mind the blessings of Jesus, who is described in Colossians as the head of the body, the church who shares those blessings that he's been given by his Father with all those who are a part of the body, every member of the church. doesn't matter if you're an ear or a finger or a hip or a nose, the blessings of God in the goodness and pleasant, pleasantness of unity are for you. Also repeatedly through the Bible, oil refers to the presence of God, like I said. When David is anointed by Samuel, King David, is anointed by the prophet Samuel. We're told, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. We see that in a number of the prophets who were anointed. Also in Psalm 23, a well-known Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's a later verse in that Psalm. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. The clear picture there is the shepherd being tangibly and meaningfully present with the sheep. The sheep. God being with his people. And if we pause and consider for a moment that this psalm is written in an age before deodorant and flushing toilets, the concept of fragrant oil becomes all the more important. You follow me? This is an age before deodorant and flushing toilets, and so fragrant, pleasant-smelling oil would have been a refreshing and unique experience in the life of God's people, of any people. Oil glistens, it picks up sunlight, it softens skin, it perfumes a person. There's a sense with the oil also that there's an ease in the fellowship of unity in the spirit, unity with God. Uh, If you contrast this with a group of people who are all together who aren't unified, like picture a mob, there's a harshness, there's friction, but oil smooths things. Picture a well-oiled machine that doesn't squeak, but it's it's working for its intended purpose. In the ancient world, having fragrant oil poured upon you was one of the palpable pleasures of the good life. This is what unity is like. Not only is it pleasing to God, but it's pleasing to us, and it's also pleasing to the world around us. And so unity is compared with oil, which signifies the presence of God, which signifies being set apart for God's purposes. When God's people dwell together in unity, God is there in a unique and tangible way. When God's people dwell together in unity— There's a distinctness, a set-apartness, an otherworldly quality to this kind of community through which God is bringing about his purposes in the world. So that's the first thing. Oil. The second thing that the enjoyment of unity is compared to is dew. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. What is it like? Verse 3, it is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, this is a reference to Mount Hermon—sorry, Hermon is actually technically the correct pronunciation, so Adam got it right. I'm going to say Hermon because it's my habit, but well done, sir. Hermon, which is the tallest mountain in the region of Israel, over 9,000 feet tall and quite expansive. So, so Hermon— it was over 9,000 feet tall, and it wasn't just like a, it's, it's not just one little poking up mountain, it's like a, it looks like a mountain range in itself. Mount Hermon was this was swath, if you see pictures, you can Google pictures of Mount Hermon, it's this beautiful snow-capped, almost mountain range. There's a ski resort there today, uh, it's covered with snow much of the year, and evidently Mount Hermon was proverbial at this time for its heavy dew. If you've ever been camping at an altitude, you'll know that when you wake up in the morning, You're drenched or the tent is drenched. Um, when, you incre- when you get higher at altitude, condensation happens more readily. I'm not a chemistry professor, so take my word for it there. You can look that up later. But, uh, but yeah, dew condenses at a high altitude. And so Hermon, it's interesting, though, that the dew of Hermon is said in Psalm 133 to fall on the mountains of Zion. The reason that's interesting is because Mount Hermon is about 100 miles from Mount Zion which is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built on Mount Zion. So they're about 100 miles away. Well, as it turns out, Mount Hermon, as the tallest mountain in the region, collects and holds so much moisture from the sky that this dew becomes a a source, a, a major source of rainfall for the entire region. And also, melting snow from Hermon is one of the primary sources of water for the Jordan River, which flows from Hermon to Jerusalem, to the region, excuse me, surrounding Jerusalem. So in this way, we can see that the dew of Hermon actually would have provided not only rain clouds, but, uh, uh, but moisture through regularly flowing water in the Jordan all the way to Jerusalem from Hermon. So just as Israelite pilgrims would have traveled long distances to arrive in Zion, so the dew of Hermon would travel long distances to reach Mount Zion. And for those pilgrims who got to actually travel along the Jordan River on their journey, they would have marveled singing Psalm 133 as they are joining the waters of Mount Hermon in their journey to Jerusalem. Once again, we get this picture of overflow, a picture of blessing being poured out and permeating throughout the people rather than just the few. Just as the oil is poured on the head and overflows down the body, here the dew of Hermon doesn't just stay in the snow-capped mountaintops, but it flows all across the land, watering an otherwise dry and arid region in the Middle East and bringing with it life. This is what unity is like, the psalmist tells us. To pause and summarize for a moment, dwelling in unity sets apart the family of God consecrates, anoints the family of God. There is a distinctiveness to, be, to the unity enjoyed in the family of God, and this distinctiveness can best be understood as the presence of God in our midst. Not only is it pleasing to God, but it's pleasing to us, and it's pleasing to those around, like fragrant oil. The second thing we see is that dwelling in unity brings together high and low, strong and weak, all across God's people— Unity brings together from the top to the bottom is an expression of bringing together a diverse people. Both of the pictures convey this, the priest and his robe, Hermon, all the way to Zion. And as we read in the last part of verse three, unity is ultimately an enjoyment of life. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So Zion Jerusalem, the place where God's people come together in unity, that is where the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is what life is, unity as God's people come together with one spirit, one purpose, one God. So what's it like to dwell with a group of people enjoying mutual concern, living together in peace? It's like the precious, sweet fragrance and feeling of this softened, oiled, perfumed good life. It's like the dew which drenches and saturates otherwise dry and weary land. It is God with his people manifesting his presence both to his people and through his people to the world. This is what it means to dwell. This is what it looks like to dwell together in unity, according to Psalm 133. And what's critical, I think, what's perhaps the main point of this psalm is where this unity comes from. This brings me to point two, where does unity come from? And here it is. Unity comes from above. All of the imagery, all of the pictures in Psalm 133 clearly follow this downward trajectory. Oil running, starting being poured out from above on the head of Aaron and rolling down. Dew being collected at Mount Hermon and rolling down to Mount Zion. So Mount Zion, for those of you who, you might know this, but it's not a very impressive mountain. It's interesting that God chose to put his heavenly city on Mount Zion because it's more like a foothill. Um, It's one of the ways in which God makes it clear that I didn't choose you because of how you looked or really anything good in you. I chose you because I love you just out of my own good grace and mercy. So Zion is, I mean, I don't want to diminish Zion's beauty because it's a beautiful mountain, but it's not Mount Hermon. It's not Mount Everest. It's not very impressive relative to the other mountains. So Oil running from top of the priest down to the bottom. Dew running from Hermon to Zion. Blessing coming from the command of the Lord from heaven down to earth. There's clear movement. Where is this blessing coming from? From above. The enjoyment of unity is the enjoyment of a gift from above. You see, here's the problem. There's no shortage of calls for unity around, in, the, in the world around us or throughout history. Unite around this person unite around this idea, unite around this flag, unite around this vision for what the good life looks like. If we could just get everyone on the same page somehow, we could live together in unity. We would have no more wars, right? The violence would end. We'd have peace in our homes. We could get to unity. The problem is that unity, even among brothers and sisters, is extremely difficult or should I say unity, especially among brothers and sisters, is extremely difficult. Isn't it interesting that seemingly the closer you get to someone, the more conflict there is? It's difficult because brothers and sisters fight. The biblical data is clear. Throughout the Bible, we see conflict uh, within families, Adam and Eve, after the original sin, the What happens is they they turn from being collaborators to competitors. They compete against one another, and there's friction there. Their sons, Cain and Abel, the first fight in the Bible, ends in murder, and it's a religious fight between two brothers. Fast forward to Joseph and his brothers, and his brothers selling him into slavery. Fast forward to Miriam and Aaron with their brother Moses, getting in a fight about what God's word means for God's people. Think about David and his brothers and their friction. Think about David's sons and their friction tearing apart the kingdom of Israel. Some of the earliest examples of the phrase used here in Psalm 133, brothers dwelling together as one, is the literal meaning, brothers dwelling together in unity. Um, Some of the earliest examples there in Genesis, uh, throughout the book of Genesis, it happens several times and it's almost always negative. Picture the story of Abraham and Lot, for those of you who are familiar with that story. They're Populating the same land, and then they make a decision there's not room here for the two of us. It's not possible, the phrase is, it's not possible for us to live together as one. And so they have to split. Throughout the Bible, uh, we see conflict within families. And modern psychology has, of course, caught up. Uh, modern psychologists agree that there is a special kind of rivalry in conflict in families. It's called sibling rivalry, I think is this, the, actually the term that psychologists use to, determine, to, to describe, it's not rocket science, the fact that brothers and sisters have a uniquely difficult time getting along sometimes. But here's the thing. The problem is that if we look, our, if we look to ourselves to fix the problems of conflict in our lives, l- we find that leaning into our way of doing things doesn't work. My mind goes to Peter, the Apostle Peter, with Jesus. And Jesus, at the end of his life, when he gets arrested, you remember what Peter does in the garden? He grabs a sword. He pulls it out. He's like, I got this, Jesus. And Jesus says, put your sword away. Don't. It's it's not time for that, Peter. It runs me of social media, um, when you think about what social media is, when, someone, when something happens, some event happens that you have an opinion about, the temptation is to grab a megaphone and stand in the middle of the city and tell everyone your opinion about a thing. We feel pressured, like that's what we need to do. I have to think, when I look at about 98% of what's posted on social media, that Jesus is probably looking and saying, gosh, it's, pro- it's not time for that. Maybe if you have a problem with that person, you should, go- you should just go talk to them and watch as I bring reconciliation rather than further conflict. Think about other well-meaning strategies that we see today. Deciding, I'm just not going to go to this or that event because I'm in a conflict with this person. I don't want to make them uncomfortable. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I'll just, I'll just not go. Deciding not to talk about areas of disagreement so as to avoid conflict. You know what? We just disagree on this, so we're just not going to talk about it. Um, we'll, just, we'll just stand at a distance with respect to this issue or this disagreement, or deciding that instead of going to talk to a person, you know, I already know what they think or what they want, and so I'm just going to live according to the knowledge that I know that they have what they think, and so I'm just going to think for them and live in line with what I've decided that they think, rather than going to talk to them about it. And do you see how ultimately all of those strategies, well-meaning as they may be, are ultimately about isolation? and distance, and avoidance. And now to caveat for a moment, I'm not talking here about wise restraint. The Bible is clear that there's times when we should keep our mouths shut. So I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about right now. What I am talking about is life practices that are based upon avoidance out of love, which will always backfire, because it usually leads to greater isolation and loneliness, and usually the enduring uh, emotional pain of a fractured relationship. Eugene Peterson is a pastor who wrote a book on uh, the Psalms of Ascent, and he has a chapter on this that's wonderful. Um, I may quote, depending on the time, from it later uh, in the sermon, but he has two ways uh, that he gives to avoid unity. Avoiding unity strategy, number one, is isolating people in conflict from others and getting them professional counseling outside of all those complicated relationships. So you want to know how to avoid unity, Peterson says, You just take people who are having a hard time with one another and get them away from each other and get them basically living totally separately as they seek to pursue healing. That's a great way to avoid unity. Avoiding unity strategy number two, according to Eugene Peterson, listen to this. He says, he calls it treating the church as an institution based not on personal relationships, but impersonal functions. An organization with a purpose... Uh, where our relationships are dependent on those functions as contributing units rather than brothers and sisters. Let me say it a little bit differently. You want to know how to avoid unity. Come up with excellent collaborative strategies and really clearly outline goals. That way, you don't have to talk about the rest of the stuff. You can just talk about this and just contribute alongside one another to where you're trying to go. You don't, really have, you don't even really have to look at each other in order to do that. How do you avoid Unity. You focus on the strategy over the person. So, in other words, you want to know how to avoid unity? Try to figure it out yourself. Listen to your heart. Do things your way. Do what you think is best. The Bible's pretty aware of the human heart. We like to build the kingdom of God from below. Garden of Eden temptation is just this. I want to do it my way. When Satan comes to Eve, God had given her his good word that said you can eat of all of these trees, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And what does Satan say? Satan comes up to Eve and says, did God really say that you're going to die if you eat that tree? Look at it. He gets her to look at it, and she sees it. She's like, oh, that looks perfectly fine to me. What's the harm in eating a piece of fruit? In fact, I do want to have the knowledge of good and evil. And so she goes and does it her way. I want to have it my way. She gives it to Adam, and he does it his way. Rather than listening to the words of God, the temptation in the garden was do it your way rather than God's way. Fast forward to the Tower of Babel, after sin, after violence had covered the earth, there was some technological progress. People had gotten really smart, they'd done really great things, and they said, you know what? We don't have to wait for God's plan of salvation. We can do it ourselves. We can build a tower. We can build our way up to heaven, we can do it ourselves. All too, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 3 that life with God looks like setting your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. But all too often, instead, we set our minds on the things that are on earth, telling ourselves that we'll get to the heavenly things later, or worse, that if we can just figure things out according to what we can see, we'll be able to bring the kingdom into it. We can do this here. We can do it with what we have on earth. There's this moment late in Jesus' earthly ministry when he's headed to Jerusalem for the last time, where he's going to be killed. And then he pauses as he's walking into Jerusalem and he weeps. You may be familiar with this story. It's told in Luke chapter 19. It says, When Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying this Jesus said, Would that you, Jerusalem, even you, even my precious city, Zion, Would that you, even you had known on this day, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden for your eyes. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, because he's, uh, and he weeps. And why does he weep? Because he's overwhelmed with sorrow that they don't know what makes for peace. He has revealed it to them. He has sent them prophets telling them, trust God. God, I heard a pastor one time summarize the whole Bible in a sentence. He was, asked if, he was asked by somebody, if you could summarize the whole Bible in a sentence, what would you say? He said, I would only need two words. Trust me. The message of the entire Bible is, trust me. A loving God, a loving Father who tells His people, trust me, I've got this. And the unfortunate story through the Bible, which is a very honest document about humanity, or honest, honest compilation of stories, we see repeatedly men and women and children saying, nope, I got this. God's saying, trust me, nope, I got this. Jesus weeps about this. In the backdrop are all of the wars that have been fought, the violence among God's people, the many that Jesus knows who are going to reject him, even after his resurrection, because he doesn't uh, uh, measure up to their expectations and their wants there is such suffering in Jerusalem on account of people trying to secure peace the way that they think that peace will come. And Jesus weeps, both account, on account of the suffering of his people and on account of the fact that he knows what he's about to do. The weight of the task before him is weighing on his shoulders. In just a matter of days, he would be dying a painful, shameful death. But to understand what this death means, it'd be helpful to consider one more moment in Jesus' ministry that happens just before this. It's the turning point in Jesus' ministry where he's been doing a really intentional teaching ministry in villages all throughout the region, and then there's a turning point when Jesus basically looks at his disciples and says, okay, we're done. It's time to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, You may know this turning point. It's the story where Jesus confesses for the first time, or Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13, Jesus travels to Caesarea Philippi and asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples offer several different answers, and then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, of course, commends Peter for this answer, and then he charges his disciples to tell no one. And then he says, from that time—then the, the text says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Now— The reason I bring up this story is because I want you to think with Psalm 133 in the background at what just happened in that exchange. Three things to point out here. Number one, do you know what the word Christ means? The word Christ means anointed one. What is unity like? It's like the oil dripping down Aaron, anointing him. The second thing, Caesarea Philippi was located at the base of a mountain, Mount Hermon. What is unity like? It's like the dew of Hermon. And then they're on their way. He turns and says, guys, here's where we're going next. Zion, Jerusalem. And why? Why is Jesus leading his disciples to Jerusalem? Again, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. So like many generations that have gone before him, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice for sin, except Jesus isn't traveling to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice for his sin. He's traveling to Jerusalem to be a sacrifice for our sin. Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem in order to suffer and be killed for us. And so let me be abundantly clear. I'm going to do this again. Let's sum up. Psalm 133 talks about the dwelling of brothers together in unity, that being like anointing oil and like the dew of Hermon that flows down to Zion and Jerusalem. And it is there that the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. That's Psalm 133. That's the flow of the Psalm. Matthew 16, we see Jesus standing with his brothers. They call him the Christ, the anointed one. They're standing at the base of Mount Hermon. Jesus tells them they're going to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem from Hermon to Zion, which is the place where God appointed for him in his death to secure his people eternal life. As a side note, do you remember what Peter says right after Jesus tells his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed? Remember what Peter says? He says, far be it from you, Lord. Peter says, no, 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 Jesus, you don't need to die. We can figure something else out. Remember what Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. And notably, listen to what Jesus says Peter is getting wrong. Jesus says, for you, Peter, are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter says, no, Jesus, you don't have to die. I've got this. I'll figure it out for you. Jesus looks at Peter and says, no, you can't. That thought comes from Satan. (laughs) But he tells Peter with such love because he knows what he's about to do. He's about to give his life for the disciples. He says, Get out of my way, Peter. I'm going to do this and nobody's going to stop me. That's a thought that comes from Satan. That's what got us here in the first place. Peace does not come from below, it must come from above. And this is what Jesus came to do for us. You see, the problem of unity is not people failing to know what it takes to be unified. The problem of disunity isn't a lack of awareness of what we need to do to be together and to get along. It's a lack of ability to do what it takes to secure unity because the problem is not primarily out there with other people who don't get it yet. The problem is in here. We say this every single week. Why we confess sin is because we don't believe that the reason the world is not as it should be is some general problem with the world, but it's a personal problem that we are seeking to build our own kingdoms And that's exactly why Jesus had to come to secure our redemption and then to send us out as renewed, in other words, born again, new creations, summarized perhaps most helpfully as those who no longer live for our sake, but for the sake of him who died and was raised for us. And we follow in his footsteps by laying down our lives for those around us. And this is, of course, a potentially offensive teaching. I've spoken negatively, negatively. just a minute ago, I spoke pretty negatively about people trying to fix the problems of disunity, and I want to just acknowledge that there's a lot of people in the world who really do mean well. Um, A lot of us have made decisions, like the ones that I mentioned are probably not going to lead to unity, out of love and out of care and out of a good desire to see unity rather than conflict. The intention is not the problem. Most people really do mean well. And furthermore, there is good work being done here and there. There's some great strategies for things like emotional health and healthier relationships that have come out of the secular world of science. There have been some of the greatest achievements in terms of ending wars and signing treaties and securing world peace have been signed by people who aren't Christians. In no way do I want to denigrate these efforts or those things. What I do want to do, however, is consider the testimony of Scripture alongside human history, which is particularly sobering. We have had the best people, with the best resources, with the best support, working on this problem for a long time, we being humanity. We've been working on this really hard. We've been trying our darndest. And so far, we have failed to secure world peace. We have failed to secure peace in marriages. We failed to secure peace in homes. Try as we might, with the best people working on it that we have, we haven't been able to secure peace and unity like we read about in the Bible. But in Christ, we see God's plan for this problem. The way that God's blessing of unity and peace comes is through Christ as he gave his life as a sacrifice for the sins of humanity and raised us up with him to live a new kind of life together. Now, on account of what Christ has done, the reality for those who are united to Christ by faith is that like oil on the head, we are anointed with Christ's anointing. Like the dew of Hermon, we are given new life. Like the oil and the dew, Jesus comes down to us as a divine blessing from God and he forms us into a family, brothers and sisters dwelling in unity. We have been united to God. We've been united to one another And for those enjoying the blessing of this unity with God and one another, eternal life, according to Jesus, has already begun. The blessing that Lord commanded from this place, from Jerusalem, from Zion, life forevermore, that is being enjoyed by those who are united to Christ by faith. With this in mind, to consider the picture of oil once again for a moment, this is ultimately a picture that corresponds to the blessing that's been poured upon humanity in the blessing of the gospel. When Jesus was baptized... The Holy Spirit came upon him, anointing him like a dove. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And like I mentioned before in Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Just so we see here, the blessing from heaven flows from the head to the rest of the body. The Holy Spirit is poured out by Jesus on all those who come to him by faith. And to consider the picture of dew once again for a moment, there's a number of other biblical images for dew, but there's one in particular that I want to mention. The prophet Micah. Uses the image of dew to refer to the remnant of God's people who are awaiting God's deliverance. Listen to what Micah says. This is Micah chapter 5, starting in verse 7. He says, Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. So the picture that Micah is painting for us here, he's a prophet to the nation of Israel, both before the fall of Jerusalem, during the fall, and then immediately afterward for a short time. The picture that we get from Micah is the picture of a remnant who are scattered across the earth like dew, which is an interesting picture, because dew is an image of hope. It's an image of resurrection, an image of new life, of renewal. In one place, Isaiah says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. The picture there is of the earth where the dead are buried, returning to the dust of the earth. But when dew lands on the earth, it leaves the ground damp, which is a sign of new life. In an area like this, in the Middle East, dew was an important source of water for farming. Farmers would plant seeds and would just leave it sitting there waiting for the dew to fall. And when the dew fell and the farmer walked out and the ground was wet, he knew, she knew, it's going to be, life is coming. The reason this is an interesting picture is because the picture that we get of the remnant of Israel scattered among the nations is not usually a super happy one. There are people groaning, suffering, often enslaved, waiting, yearning for their return to the land, But Micah compares them to dew. The remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord. And so what's going on here? It's worth noting that just before this, Micah had given a prophecy of a ruler coming from Bethlehem who will deliver and shepherd Israel. We are therefore entirely warned as seeing Micah 5 here, this prophecy of dew among the nations, as being a prophecy about the new covenant church. God had placed his people all among the nations— in the midst of the people, and God's intention was to deliver them and send them right back to those people, not to create some holy huddle separate from the world, but to be sent right back to bring new life, resurrection life of Jesus to the nations. So all of that to say, what is going on here? What is going on in Psalm 133 is that we see very clearly unity does not come from below. It comes from above. Unity is a blessing from the Lord, not to be secured, but simply to be enjoyed because it's already been provided. In short, true unity, like all good gifts, is from above, bestowed rather than contrived, a blessing far more than an achievement. And so what does this mean? This means that our lives look utterly different. I have really just got one application point for this sermon, for what this means for our life as a church, and it's this. Our lives are no longer striving to bring about what we think is best in the world, but instead, our lives are about looking for, noticing, celebrating, and enjoying what God is doing in us and in all those around us. Here's what I mean this is a profound change. Here's what I mean if there's not a trustworthy God who has a plan for your life and everyone else's life around you, who will ultimately bring those plans to redemption, then you're it. Like, if, the, if there's not a God you can trust with your life and the lives of those around you, then you are it, and you better make the most of the time and try to make the world as good of a place as you can, because it's up to you. But if there is a God who you can depend on, then the pressure is off. And rather than trying to manufacture the unity, the peace that you're trying to look, you simply start enjoying it, because it's here. Jesus' disciples a couple of times said, Jesus, when is the kingdom? I mean, we're we're ready for the kingdom. Even after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples say, Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And they forgot the fact that the first the very first sermon recorded by Jesus, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said, It's here. You can enjoy it today. If there is a God who is trustworthy, then we can simply start enjoying the peace and the unity that he's given us. And when you take a step back, sometimes this looks as simple as taking a deep breath, shutting our mouth for a moment, and asking God, what are you doing in my life? Asking God, what are you doing in this person's life that I'm not seeing right now? It isn't always easy. Sometimes you do have to look for God in one another. You have to look really hard. Picture someone who's a huge naysayer in general. Don't don't say any names out loud. Picture someone in your life who's a huge naysayer, cynic, what have you. You could look at that person and feel sorry for them. You could look at that person and be really frustrated with them. You could try to avoid them at parish gatherings. You could go and tell them, "You know what? You're just lacking the hope of the Lord, brother." But what if instead your approach looked like approaching that person and saying, I see in you a deep concern that things are not as they should be. That's probably from the Lord. How can I pray with you about this over the next few days? You didn't say anything corrective. Instead, you just spoke a word of affirmation to them. You drew close to them. You invited them into a communal prayer about that thing, which will... Hopefully, lead you to God and His Word and give God a chance to move in that person's life and in the circumstance that is your relationship with that person that you watched as God is growing. Maybe one day the Lord will make it clear to you that you'll have an opportunity to clarify wrong perspectives or feelings that this person is uh, experiencing, like resentment or bitterness or what have you. But chances are, right now is not the place to start. Unless your first step is towards that person in affirmation, you're probably trying to force it. This is helpful in conflict, too, to give a parenting example. Say you have a child who misbehaves on purpose. This is for those of you who are parents. Option one, you could say, you know better than that, cut it out. Option two, you could say, why do you always do this? You always give your sister a hard time. Just be kind for once. Or option three, you could say, I can see you've got a lot of feelings that you're having a hard time expressing. Can you tell me more about those? They may or may not be able to. But you get to draw near and affirm. Now, this sometimes takes a lot of work for parents. You affirm the fact that God has knit them, is knitting them together as a young emotional being, and they're learning. And you point them and say, hey, I see this in you. Let's talk about it. Maybe there's a need that I can help meet. And let's talk about how probably better to channel those emotions than what you just did. To give an adult example, what about someone who doesn't read the room and says something that hurts someone else or pushes someone away or makes someone feel unwelcome? Option one, you do nothing, just think to yourself about it. Option two, go vent to someone else about it. Or option three, take a deep breath and give them the benefit of the doubt in terms of their intention and then simply approach them. and Say, hey, I see that you care a lot about this. I wanted you to know that I think that what you did offended this person. And I think that there's a really good opportunity to see reconciliation happen in this situation. Listen to how Eugene, I I do want to read this. Listen to how Eugene Peterson describes what this looks like in community. This is a book that I would recommend to everyone in here. Along obedience in the same direction, this is like the eighth recommendation of this book from this pulpit. I think at least I recommend it. He says this. He says, "Of course, the fact that we are a family of faith does not mean we are one big happy family. The people we encounter as brothers and sisters in faith are not always nice people. They do not stop being sinners the moment they begin believing in Christ. They don't suddenly metamorphose, they don't suddenly change into brilliant conversationalists, exciting companions and glowing inspirations. Some of them are cranky, some of them dull, and others, if the truth must be spoken, a drag." But at the same time, our Lord tells us they are brothers and sisters in faith. If God is my father, then this is my family. So the question is not, am I going to be a part of a community of faith? But instead, how am I going to live in this community of faith? God's children do different things. Some run away from it and pretend the family doesn't exist. Some move out and get an apartment on their own from which they return to make occasional visits— nearly always showing up for the parties and bringing a gift to show they really do hold the others in fond regard. And some would never dream of leaving, but cause others to dream it for them, for they are always criticizing what is served at the meals, quarreling with the way the housekeeping is done, and complaining that the others in the family are either ignoring or taking advantage of them. And some, determined to find out what God has in mind by placing them in this community called a church— learn how to function in it harmoniously and joyously, and develop the maturity that is able to share and exchange God's grace with those who might otherwise be viewed as nuisances. It's a bit of a long quote, but I thought it was just a beautiful picture of, like a real picture of life in the church. How do we do it? What is the right mindset for pursuing unity? Essentially, Psalm 133 shows us that unity comes from above— And that means that as Christians, we are to have mindsets of expectation with respect to what God is doing in us and in our brothers and sisters of faith, which comes first from our enjoyment of what God is doing in us and in our hearts. A community of people looking at people not for what they can do or give to you, but for what God has said about them and what God is doing in them. It it looks like looking for those things and noticing those things out loud— encouraging even minuscule, slow steps of progress on the journey of growth as gifts from above. This is the kind of life, this is is what causes, this is an ingredient of a life-giving community. If this is your perspective on the people around you, then how can you but celebrate? This is God's child. God is growing her. God is growing him. And I am placed in their life to see what God is doing and to encourage them that God is with them. How can you be a part of a community like that and not live a life of celebration? It is incredibly hard to be part of a community when it's all about you. It's super disappointing, always, if you are trying to be a part of a community and make that community all about you. It's incredibly wonderful, on the other hand, to be part of a community when we're instead interested in God and excited about what he is doing in the lives of those around us. In this kind of community, it's impossible to feel bored because you're always learning new things about the people around you and about how God works. It's impossible to feel alienated among such people. This is the oil flowing down Aaron's beard. This is the dew of Hermon soaking the mountainside and running from top to bottom. This is where the Lord has commanded the blessing. His people gathered together in his presence. This is what we are doing here. And as a final note, that last line that the psalmist includes, there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Enjoying this kind of unity and celebration in what God is doing in our lives and the lives of others is a participation in the kind of thing that we will be doing for all eternity, which will not ever be boring. We get to look and see, behold, what Jesus is doing in the lives of those around us, and that is what we will be doing for all eternity. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the kind of life that Psalm 133 reveals to us. When we think about the pictures of people white-knuckling, trying to get their way towards unity, when we think about a ministry, ministries, teachers, even Christian teachers, who talk about how it's all about winning the right argument or getting the right position, it's not, to, it's, it's not that we should devalue truth. It's not that we should devalue right doctrine. It's that we should put truth in its right place alongside love. And in the context of loving, tangible, actual relationship. Because God is way better at changing someone else's mind than you are. And you can do a whole lot more in the world around you, even for your own soul, by simply loving and asking questions of the people around you. And looking, sometimes painfully patiently, to notice out loud for them what you see God is doing in their life. That's the kind of community that I hope that we can be sojourned. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for Psalm 133. Thank you for this beautiful picture of unity, um, how we get to savor it and enjoy it like anointing oil, precious oil, fragrant oil, Um, sometimes masking things that smell bad with your grace. Lord, I pray. I know that my mind goes to the verse in Corinthians where Paul says, love covers a multitude of wrongs. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people who are able to actually, with one another, love one another in a way that covers a multitude of wrongs. Because ultimately we know that your love has covered a multitude of wrongs on our part and instead of looking at us on account of our wrongs you choose to look on us on account of the righteousness of Christ it boggles the mind that you would want to be in a relationship with me or with us as your creatures and yet you set your love upon us you've made a way for our wrongs to be made right and in so doing you have secured a peace that is available to us today we don't have to strive for it because it's here. We do strain to experience it and it takes work and we need your spirit's help but we know that it's here because you've given it to us. So please help us to be a community that celebrates what you're doing in one another's lives well. Help us to constantly be in prayer asking you, what are you doing in this situation? What are you doing in this person's heart? What are you doing in my life? And then have the boldness and courage to actually share out loud what we believe that you are doing in us. And let that be the kind of lifeblood that runs through this community. Not, a, not the lifeblood of criticism. Not the lifeblood of thinking others people's thoughts for them. Not of trying to simply win arguments for argument's sake. But a life of love and celebration. Because that is... When we, when we, when we consider the picture that we're given of you as our father at a bunch of people running home is a life of a father who's ready to throw us a party. The prodigal father who welcomes his child back, not to be self-critical, but to simply enjoy fellowship with the Father. So help us to enjoy fellowship with you, fellowship with one another, marked by celebration and joy and entrusting all of the outcomes, every single one of them to you. In Christ's name, amen.